Welcome to the Told Me to Learn and Develop for Medical Educators podcast series from the Frank H. Netter, MD, School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge in teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. Today, we are talking about how to effectively teach technical skills or procedures to medical learners, meaning manual skills that can range from performing an EKG to doing a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So today's conversation applies to almost all specialties, and it's one that has evolved over time. Effective methods for teaching technical skills have been studied for many years, and the most recent literature supports the use of coaching. A clinician performing a technical skill has been compared to a high-performance athlete, the best of whom continually work with coaches. What does coaching entail, and how can we serve as coaches for our learners? To help answer this question, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Danielle Friedman, the Surgery Clerkship Director at Netter and a General Surgeon at St. Vincent's Medical Center. Danielle, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Danielle, how is teaching technical skills different than teaching in other parts of clinical medicine? I always compare teaching technical skills to like learning a second language or even a third language. You have to understand not only the breakdown of the components of that technical skill, but also when and how to use them. So it's really uh, two teaching methods on top of each other. And it also requires direct observation um, as well as continuous feedback. So those things you just mentioned, right, the direct observation and the continuous feedback, that's something that, you know, anybody who's been teaching technical skills um which, by the way, we're using interchangeably with teaching procedures, um, you know, learns that quickly, right? That it you have to be watching closely. You've got to be giving feedback. So those already are parts of coaching, but I thought we could maybe break it down and talk about, you know, what's different. So the current movement in teaching technical skills is to use coaching techniques. So what does coaching include and how is it different than traditional teaching? So coaching does obviously borrow heavily from the sports world. Um, and it requires, uh, I think a really planned approach, uh, which is interesting because you take that planned approach and pair it with dynamic situations, but it often starts with forming a goal or, a, an intention for the practice that you're going to be doing at that moment, and then followed by active direct observation of the dynamic performance of that process or step in the process, and then immediate feedback. And then a really key portion to it is repetition. So whether that's repetition of the learner followed by an interval observation again by the coach or the coach directly observing repeated practice, that is a really key element to improvement is going through the process once and then repeating the steps over and over um, to create really structured practice. 
You know, to me, that's one of the biggest pieces that I think about when I think about the difference in coaching is that repeated observed practice with feedback, right? One of my mentors in education, Kelly Scaff from Stanford, probably so many people know him. He um, loves this quote that he had um, told, and, and it's unclear who it's from. And they said, if we taught physicians the way we taught pianists, we would tell them to go in a room. Oh, sorry. If we taught pianists the way we taught physicians, I always get that one backwards. Sorry. If we taught pianists the way we taught physicians, we would tell them to go in a room, play the piano, come back and tell us how it sounded. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we do that so often, right? And so the the I think of the more traditional way is that, yes, you have somebody teach you. And in that teaching process, the see one, do one, teach one, you do have somebody observing you and giving you feedback, but then you just go off and you just do it on your own over and over and over and over again, right? Without anybody watching. Um, right or at least planning to watch. So to me, that's one of the, the biggest differences that it's a really deliberate repeat observation, feedback, repeat observation, feedback. Yes, that's really crucial. And I think one thing that's been really studied um, in, in the literature thus far that supports coaching is that in that repetitive feedback loop, the relationship with the coach is also incredibly important. And I don't think you can establish a relationship with a coach without that repetition and vice versa. That's a really great point. And um, when I, I know when I talk about coaching, I, I often show um, at least a clip of Atul Gawande's TED Talk on, it's called, If You Want to Get Great at Something, Get a Coach. And he talks about the fact that he's a, he's famous surgeon, author, um, public health um, expert and advocate. And um, and he talks about the fact that as a surgeon, that he saw his complication rates get lower and lower over time as he just repeated his practice and then they just leveled out. Um, and so he brought in a retired mentor of his to come and watch him. And it was only, and he said it was uncomfortable and um, difficult. And his mentor had lots of feedback for him that he didn't anticipate because he thought he was an expert at that point. Um, but he actually had quite a lot to learn with somebody watching him. And it was only after, you know, repeated coaching that he received that he actually started to see a drop once again in his um in his complication rates and so this this correlates right so well with um the sort of these graphs that you'll see around development of expertise that we can become experts with just repetition by ourselves but we will level off and we can only continue that upward trajectory if in fact we're engaging in deliberate practice or coaching. I'm wondering if you have found that in your own learning of technical skills. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm relatively early in my career. I've been in attending for about four years now, and it's incredible 
to watch how acquisition of technical skills progresses as you go through surgical training. In residency, you see this enormous acquisition of skills going from zero to to 60. Um, And you get to the end of residency and think that you have learned sort of everything. Uh, And then when you become an attending, the first year or two are full of this exponential growth in your skill set. And it's not necessarily learning new technical skills, but it's the um, polishing of those technical skills and gaining confidence and gaining nuance and judgment in the technical skills. And even, and at every step of the way, a coach can add to that. So in residency, a coach may be teaching you a skill for the first time or developing the correct performance of that skill at a basic level. But then as you progress in in your uh, ability to perform those skills, the coaching uh, adapts. And, you know, one of the things that I love um, that I loved about uh, Atul Gawande's talk um, is that he gave an example of one of the first things his coach corrected him on was something as simple as how he was draping and positioning the patient and the participants at the surgical field. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily some high level uh, maneuver or, or technical skill that's going to be out of reach for most people. It's, it's something simple, but incredibly important. So it can be foundational even when you have a very high level of skill So I think coaching can really apply at every step along the way. And I've definitely found it um, to continue in my own practice. Um, And it can even happen remotely. You know, I find the experiences of friends or former mentors, you know, through either video or conversations, very, very helpful. And, and when we're using, when we're, when we're talking about our coaches um, or coaches for learning, we're not talking about you know, people who are calling in to do this, this is us. So this is us using coaching in our teaching. And so do you use coaching? I'm assuming you do, um, which is why we're having this conversation. But I guess my question is, can you give us a couple of examples of how you use it? Absolutely. So um, I, I'll use the example of performing laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So this is an incredibly common procedure. And it's something that all of the surgical learners on rotation see whether it's the junior students all the way through the senior residents. And I like to break the case into components. And I typically will ask the resident um, or the student, what part of the case do you want to work on today? Um, I find that performing, letting them become expert in sort of one component early on is very helpful because it doesn't always help to let them struggle through the whole thing. I find that sometimes it's more effective to focus on, on one aspect. So sometimes it might be dissection of the cystic duct, or it might be appropriate use of a clip applier, or it could be finding the right plane when removing the gallbladder from the liver bed. And Mm -hmm. it makes it much easier when they're, when they're focused on that one specific portion of the procedure to then give really granular feedback. Um, and this extends all the way even to proper handling of the instruments. And I think that maybe is even the best example where I'll observe how a student is 
using the actual dissecting instrument, their hand position, the amount of pressure or tension that they're using, how they're achieving that tension, and give them immediate feedback on it, and then suggest ways that they can practice it outside of the operating room. Mm. That plan for improvement is always so important um, in the feedback, um, critical. So th- that's a great example. That was really helpful. Um, and and so you mentioned, and we and I've you mentioned the term um, deliberate practice. So I wanted to talk about that for a second as well because that's just that's really the foundation of coaching. So this the cycle of setting specific goals, creating a mental model of expertise that's shared with your coach, pushing beyond the learner's comfort zone where they're really on their learning edge. They're they're not in an unsafe situation for them or for the patient, but they're a little out of their comfort zone as that's where we tend to learn best. And then focused practice which is exactly what you described, right? On a specific for that specific goal, so on one specific piece of something, while being observed, then getting direct specific feedback, and then sort of rinse and repeat that whole process over again, and that's called deliberate practice. So it's purposeful mm-hmm. and systematic practice with immediate feedback, and that's that key to developing that true expertise, and and. I guess that my question to you is how have you found that that's different than simply repeating that, repeating the procedure over and over? Like, have you actually seen the side by side of that? I think I've seen it in my own practice. Um, it It's hard to know. You know, I unfortunately, I haven't had enough longitudinal experience with the learners entirely yet to sort of see this payoff. You can see it in the short term, certainly, but you know, you really need to see it happen over over three or four or five years with, with a student or a resident. Um, in my own practice, I can absolutely tell you that I, I actually use this model um, where when I'm preparing for a case, I am watching game tapes and and actually, that's something that we haven't brought up so far, but is sort of a another part of this. Um, watching recordings of yourself performing the action or the, um, the skill and then giving yourself that feedback, too. Um, but it's been shown that even running through the procedure in your mind and mentally performing the skills, talking yourself through the steps and talking about the um, the uh, techniques that are going to be applied um, can 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 serve just as well as actual physical practice, um, and so that's something that the residents and students certainly can use as well. Um, but it's really uh, I've found that when I do warm up and mental preparation and going through each particular step in my mind before a procedure that my, my technical performance is better than if I, for example, just uh, reviewed the anatomy and reviewed the steps, but didn't think through what it would look like in my own hands. Hmm. That is so interesting. I, I didn't know that's so interesting. Um, and, you know, being the one who's being coached on the other end, um, 
really requires a growth mindset, right? So the growth mindset, meaning that the learner believes in the concept that failure brings success, right? Rather than failure Mm -hmm. being the limit of their abilities. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Have you seen this make a difference in the success of students and residents um, in the OR or when learning any other technical skill that, that having a growth mindset makes a difference? And, and if so, how do you nurture that belief in the learners? I absolutely think that the growth mindset is critical. Um, you know, we're all fairly high achievers in medicine and I think used to being skilled at things and one absolutely has to open up their mind to the possibility of failure um, in a controlled way. Um, So yes, that mindset has to be there of, I can always improve, I can always do better. And that should be in the coach's mind as well, that no matter how expert you are, you can always improve. Um, But I think the job for the coach is to create controlled failure. So again, because we're dealing with patient care and technical skills that are being performed on a person, you know, you can't exactly use the metaphor of, oh, it's okay to strike out from time to time. Well, you know, not, not so much in this case, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is okay to, uh, to have a bad swing from time to time, as long as, you know, to extend the metaphor, as long as the catcher is there to kind of back you up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's the job of the surgical coach is a small dose of failure in a safe way with, with backup and with supervision. So allowing a, a, an appropriate time period of struggle, 10 minutes of struggle, 15 minutes of struggle, um, followed by showing the learner how to get out of that difficult scenario. I think that provides an effective, uh, resolution that allows not only keeps the patient safe and completes the teaching, but also allows the learner to maintain that growth mindset. Because I do think that too much failure is an impediment to the growth mindset Mm -hmm. where it becomes very, very frustrating. I love that analogy. That's so great. And I love the term controlled failure because that's certainly what we have to do in medicine. Um, That's really helpful. And and then I, I also wonder, you know, have you, to, I don't know, we're see, we're just starting to see this model, right, of really deliberately um, thinking about coaching as a, as a mode of teaching, both with technical skills and with cognitive skills, um, right? It's, we're starting to think about this really broadly. And so did you have anybody that did this with you in your training? Were you ever coached? Um, and, and if so, you know, were they good at it? Like when, when did that happen? I'm curious. I think for me, where I probably saw it most was in my fellowship. And I think that tends to be true for a lot of surgeons where you get very concentrated attention, concentrated individual attention from your mentors over a year or two years, or sometimes even longer. And that allows not only that that relationship to form, but a really intimate knowledge of the learner's abilities and technical um, technical skill set at baseline. And so I did my fellowship mentors were very good about 
they had different styles, but it was absolutely a process of setting goals and then direct feedback, sort of direct, dynamic, continuous feedback, followed by repetition. Um, and I think, again, it's that repetition that allows sort of the, mo- the closest to a traditional coaching model to happen within sort of specialized training, although it can certainly be applied uh, in general training as well. Um, but I do think that more uh, concentrated one-on-one time is really helpful. What, what did you do your fellowship in? I didn't know you I'm did fellowship fellowship. trained in minimally invasive and bariatric surgery uh, oh, with a, with a strong that. concentration in foregut as well. So, and did you, and did you see a difference? I'm curious between your general surgical training and your fellowship training in terms of, um, like, why do you think that was different? You think it was just because there's so fewer fellows than there are residents. So there's more opportunity for that one-on-one. I think so. I think that had a big uh, portion to do with it. It, it also is very interesting because the procedures that we were doing in fellowship were more specialized. And even though we were high volume with them, it still meant that, for example, you know, a Heller myotomy, we saw maybe 10 or 11 of those throughout my fellowship year. Um, mm-hmm. But it is a procedure that I perform now. And so it really required for every one of those that arose, it required that intensive preparation so that when you had the opportunity to participate in it, you could maximize the the yield. That's such a good point. We didn't talk about the fact, right, that some some technical skills that that we're learning or teaching um, can have you have the opportunity to practice over and over with short intervals in between and some you don't and they have there's long intervals in between which can make it difficult to get that repetition in um that's a really good point so probably i would think it's even more important to utilize that really deliberate process exactly you have to be mentally practicing and practicing the component skills as much as you can and thinking about i would say this is the metaphor here in the sports world would be the off season where you're conditioning mm-hmm. you're mentally training you're physically training even if it's not the entire package of technical skills you can physically train in ways that improve the components of those technical skills so one example that I use all the time with students and junior residents is they have to learn how to strengthen their left hand. Laparoscopic Mm -hmm. skills are all about two-handed coordination. And so the the trainee may be very good with their dominant hand, um, but they can't really take the next step until they strengthen their non-dominant hand and allow it to have some degree of independence. And so one of the earliest things I tell students and and trainees to do is to start doing simple tasks at home with their left hand. Uh, So whether it's brushing their teeth or writing a grocery Mm -hmm. list or brushing their hair with their left hand or or their non-dominant hand, as the case may be, while doing another simple task with their dominant hand, there are so many ways that you can strengthen sort of the muscles behind the more complex tasks in preparation. Yeah, which comes back to the fact that the teacher being the expert so often, um, 
um, almost always, in fact, right, that if you have expertise in something, that the knowledge of what you're doing is so tacit, it's so innate, sometimes it's even hard to break it down and say, wait, what do I do in the first and second step? You don't even recognize it anymore. Um, so that's such a good point that you really have to be deliberate about as the teacher to break it all down into every single step so that you can help somebody build that up. Um, I really like for our podcast to, to provide practical advice um, and evidence-based practical advice um, whenever possible. And so what do you think are the one or two really practical takeaways for faculty, um, regardless of specialty, uh, who might be listening and want to improve their effectiveness in teaching technical skills? If we broke it down to like one or two really specific pieces of what we talked about. One great piece of advice that my fellowship mentor gave me was you don't have to have the learner do the entire procedure from step A to step Z every time to maximize their learning from it. And I think for busy clinicians who are uh, pressed for time and perhaps pressed for patient load, picking that one component of the procedure that the trainee feels they need to work on most or that the coach or teacher feels they need to work on most is valuable, even though it's not, quote unquote, the entire procedure. So it could be something from uh, when placing a central line, it could be that the trainee wants to improve their confidence with ultrasound guided access. So maybe they do the initial stick only and then the attending does the rest. Um, or a senior resident does the rest. Um, or it could be that uh, basically that they they choose a component and break it down into its sort of molecular steps. and but but that shortens, it gives really valuable practice, but it shortens the time necessary to do it. Um, and I think that is unfortunately a reality of clinical teaching in the current uh, in the current world. Um, and then giving the trainee action items to take away from the observation. So even if it's just one or two pieces of feedback, taking that feedback and turning it into a plan for practice at the conclusion, I think solidifies everything that was taught during that one encounter. And again, can maximize limited exposure. That's really helpful, Danielle. Thank you so much for talking with me today. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. I love talking about this. I do too. I, I, I genuinely, this is one of my favorite topics and I'm so happy that you're able to join me. Coaching and medical education is such an interesting area for more learning and I appreciated the chance to think about how it can and should be applied in surgical teaching and procedural teaching. I thought it was really interesting. I'm Lisa Coplet. Thanks for listening and check out our next podcast in two weeks. I would like to thank the people who contributed to the show. Katie Lyons, our wonderful producer, and David DeRoche, our program director at Quinnipiac University. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at Netter, email katie.lyons 
at qu.edu. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts.